Hey, welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill Mikeleck, and you're listening to part two of our episode on bird banding. So if you haven't listened to part one, you may want to go back and do that. In that part, we covered the history and other background info on bird banding, and in this part, we delve into research looking at whether or not banding is harmful to the birds that are involved. We learned a lot, and we think you'll enjoy it. So let's get back out on the trail at Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve in western New York. Now, we've done a really basic overview of bird banding. Now I wanted to get into some studies about, is it safe? Yeah. Are birds actually injured during this process? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say I'm actually going to focus on mostly banding with rings. So you mean what you do? Yes, what we do out at Beaver Meadow, setting up a mist net, catching birds, and putting on a single metal band. And I'm going to ask, are you going to talk about every bird species except for gray cat birds or because it's going to be different for gray cat birds that's what we catch a lot probably mostly at beaver meadow and they're really fragile unfortunately but not compared to some other species and we'll get into that in your personal anecdotes or no i'm now i'm asking you personally from your personal anecdotes is there things that are more problematic than gray cat birds in terms of okay yeah so there's birds that when i'm banding I'm more careful with other species right. than gray cat birds. Now, what I'm saying now, I don't want you guys to think that birds are dying a lot. This <laughs> is a rare phenomenon that can happen, and it has happened in the past. We hope it's rare, yeah. Well, I, I'm saying in, in my personal experience, like when I used to come every week, yeah. I think like in a season maybe, I, I remember one year we had one catbird die or something, but mm-hmm. it wasn't even during banding. It was just, you know, while we were waiting for it. What do you mean while we were waiting? You mean in the net? Yeah. No, no, not in the net. After we had uh, bagged it. Oh, so it was in the bag. So what we do, folks, is when we remove a bird from the net, we put them into these opaque cloth bags. So it calms the bird, protects the bird. Yeah. And then we try to process it as quickly as possible. But if we catch a lot of birds in what we call a net run, when we go out and check the nets, we'll have the birds all hanging on a string that we set up. And then as we band them, we take them off. So you're saying there was a gray catbird waiting to be processed and it died in the bag. Yeah. yeah. At least that was my recollection of it. And I think that it happened another year too, but it was the the couple times that I'd experienced it, it was with gray catbirds. So so you're kind of asking right now, how often does that happen, right? And, and is there another bird that we have more issues with than gray catbirds? Yes. Just anecdotally, it just seemed like gray catbirds were the toughest one. Yeah. Anecdotally, at our banding site at Beaver Meadow, one of our most problematic birds are American robins. Oh, really? That's the species that seems to succumb quickest to stress yeah. and could die just from stress. Well, we and we take that seriously oh, because very. We, we've, we've had to release birds before just in case, like if we had them for too long or... Right. Yeah. Or even if you're trying to take a bird out of the net and it seems stressed, and we'll talk about signs of stress, rather than band it, if we feel this bird is just too stressed, we release it. Yeah. Because the safety of the birds is the number one priority. Right. That being said, capturing and tagging any wildlife is going to stress the animal out, and harming the wildlife is a thorny issue. It's something you have to address, you have to look at, and that is a perfect segue into what we're going to talk about now. Okay. So there's this book called The Handbook of Field Methods for Monitoring Land Birds. This is kind of seen as the textbook land birds <laughs> for studying birds here in north america right it makes me think of australia though <laughs> really land birds what do you mean these are air birds that we study oh <laughs> you're thinking like ostriches and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah okay but it provides a guideline of one percent mortality rate so okay. trying to capture any wildlife for scientific study 
your goal is that nothing's going to get injured, right? Yeah. And this is a thorny issue because I think for some people, including our listeners out there, they might think that, well, if wildlife is getting injured in any way, then you shouldn't be doing it. Right. But, but I think that's almost impossible. I think my issue with that is that the way that we've altered the world already is just by default resulting in a lot of death. And is this really a significant addition to that if it provides significant benefits in the long run? Because we're looking at populations, not just individuals. And I think the bottom line is you have to weigh the value of the data that you're getting and how much that's going to help our understanding of that species and our ability to protect that species. Right. Like, we wouldn't just do it if we, if we just wanted to find out about the species, you know. Correct. We'd want to do it to protect the species. So I think that's what a lot of the underlying, you know, uh, emphasis is on a lot of this stuff, is that they, we're doing it to protect the birds, but there is some loss that happens. Right. So I'm going to proceed from this point on, you know, for the listener's benefit, with the idea that, Realistically, anytime you're researching wildlife, there is going to be some level of injury and or mortality. You're going to minimize that as much as possible. And the handbook for monitoring land birds, they list a guideline of 1% mortality, above which that should be considered excessive. Mm. If you capture 100 animals and more than one of them dies, you need to shut down and look at what is going on this shouldn't be happening. Right. So can that be something when you're getting your license renewed after three years? Is that another thing they look at? I don't know if when you apply or reapply, mm-hmm. I don't know the process of, of whether they go back through your data. Right. But I do know that there have been people in the past who's had their permits pulled because it was noticed that they had an excessively high oh. mortality rate. Yeah. Okay. All right. The first study that was shared with me This was from 2016, and this looked at oven birds. So that's a a species of woodland bird we have around here. And they talked about how when ornithologists fit an aluminum band on a bird, sometimes they can add up to six color bands. Seems like a lot. And the vast majority of leg injuries reported appear to be related either directly or indirectly to this kind of banding. Hmm. Um, There's also evidence that vulnerability to band-related injuries might be species-specific. Oh, okay. All right. Now, throughout preparing for this episode, one study kept coming up in a lot of introductions to studies that were looking at injuries or mortality due to bird banding. Mm -hmm. They kept referring to this 1997 study that looked at willow flycatchers and showed an excessive rate of injury. Now, we're going to... Oh, that's a tough one, right? Willow flycatcher? I don't know. No, I'm saying tough to ID. It is tough to ID. Yeah. Yes. So I'm not going to get into the specifics of the study right now, but I'm, I just want to put a pin into that. Okay. So that's the Sedgwick and Kluss study from 1997 that looked at willow flycatchers. Now, in spite of you know recent developments in the kind of radio tracking that you were talking about, leg bands are really still the main marking method in songbird population studies. In this study, the one from 2016, over a nine-year period, they banded 525 oven birds, and they put on a metal band and three plastic color bands. Hmm. Now, of those, 322 returned to the study area. Oh, that's a good recapture rate. Yeah. That's like three out of every five. Of those that returned, four males were missing a foot. Oh. So that was about 1%. Mm-hmm. 
in all cases, the loss of the foot occurred two to three years after banding. Okay. Sorry, it, just just really quick. Yeah. And did they not see, because four is a pretty low number, mm -hmm. did they not see a missing foot on new captured oven birds? They weren't going to look at new birds. They were trying to look at, out of the original set that was captured, out mm -hmm. of that original data set, Yeah. those that were recaptured, they wanted to look at, was there injury related hmm. to that original capture so they weren't going to include new birds okay do you understand what i'm saying i, I do yeah I, th I believe so because that'd be introducing new data into the set yeah a part of me was thinking sometimes you want that control but also you don't know what the overall population is so i don't know how you'd use that data anyway yeah Th sorry go ahead. No, it's <laughs> go okay ahead. Yeah. There, i know there's a lot of questions this brings up but for these birds of the ones that were injured three of those four injured individuals with foot loss had a plastic band on the foot. So that suggests that these bands might indeed be more harmful than just aluminum bands. Okay. But they did say this conclusion has to be tempered by the low number of injured birds in the study. Right. I mean, if they're looking at just injured birds, they have a sample set of four. Yeah, four out of what the 300 or so right. that they got back. So that's less than 1%. Yeah. Now, the other 200 were eaten because of the bands. <laughs> <laughs> now, they, they did say that the birds that were injured, they did continue to migrate and return, hold territories, and produce young. Hmm. So it didn't seem to impact them negatively. And they said, considering the low frequency at which injuries seem to occur, their results say that the effects of band-related injuries in this one species are negligible. And it suggests that the benefits of bird banding greatly outweigh the costs associated with potential injuries. All right. But again, that's just one species. That's just looking at oven birds. Right. Did, I wonder, did they say anything about the fact that, so obviously you know that you're not going to get a lot of those birds back. Right. I still thought 300 was really high. Oh, yeah. But it makes me wonder if they had to consider what happened to the other 200. Obviously, some are going to get eaten regardless, right. even if they weren't banded at all. But I wonder if that was a consideration. It was. So they did reference that in the study. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, when you look at migration, yeah. there are some estimates that say 50% of the birds that migrate die oh, during I, the process. I expected a less than 10% recapture. And when you said 300 out of the 500, that, that, is that impressive. blew my mind. Yeah. Right. But maybe oven birds are different than other birds. So I would imagine even based on species, you're going to get different but survival I th rates. I think if you're banding at a certain site and... Boy, I feel bad. I should know this because I wonder out at Beaver Meadow, what percentage of the birds that we banned do we recapture? Yeah. But I would say when I look through the data, there are a lot of birds that we recapture year after year, but I don't know yeah. the percentage. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you're much less likely to recapture a hatchier bird than you are to recapture a second year bird or after hatchier bird. Because isn't there mortality... There's a huge die-off in their first year, but after they survive that, then they're more likely to survive, right? I don't know for sure, but that does make sense. It sounds good. I, I thought, I thought <laughs> I've read that somewhere, like in a study or something. One of the studies that I'm going to cover did consider the fact that in the first year, birds are more likely to be injured. They're more fragile to go through the banding process. There's mm -hmm. a higher likelihood of them being injured in the process, mm -hmm. which makes sense. Yeah. All right, now, part of the group of studies that our banding volunteer friend sent to me included an article. This article had the title, get this, Banding Kills Birds It's Supposed to Tag. 
Oh boy. <laughs> and then there was a subheading, banding can kill the creatures it was designed to monitor, new research has found. That would have been a better title. The subtitle seems way better. Oh, sorry. Hold on a second. I keep getting ants all over me. Hey guys, I'm really sorry if the sound keeps going up and down and up and down. I'm being attacked by gigantic black ants right now. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep my cool. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, like the subtitle is way better <laughs> than the actual title, I think. It's even, I, I even think it's a little bit harsh, but it's, I, it seems more accurate. Banding can kill, I don't know. It's not like a very definitive statement, but... <laughs> well, back at the beginning of this episode, I talked about science journalism and, and some issues with it. And that's one reason I included this article. And why don't we walk a little bit? Yeah. You are getting attacked. <laughs> so this article references a study from the early 2000s that looked at penguins. Okay. It looked at 100 penguins in a colony of 25,000 that were given electromagnetic transponder tags. And then 50 of the 100 were also given flipper bands. So these bands that, um, I don't know if they clip on to their flippers or they're held in with rivets, like those patagial bands, I don't know, but they were tracked for five years. Penguins without the bands fared better. Hmm. They arrived earlier at the colony for courtship and breeding. They produced 54 chicks versus the 28 chicks that the banded birds produced. Whoa. And they were more likely to survive. So the lead researcher, he said that flipper bands decreased hydrodynamic efficiency. So in other words, it increased drag. Yeah. And this increased the energy costs of the bird, especially when they were foraging in deep water. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Just a little bit of drag can really make a big difference. So the author went on to say that past studies had shown that certain bands and tags could hurt different species. Like, for example, there's a 1999 study that concluded that snowy plovers lost legs due to metal banding. But when I went and looked at that study, 1.9% mm -hmm. had injuries from metal bands. It's excessive. So it is over the 1%. <laughs> but the injuries didn't prevent breeding. Hmm. And then some of the birds were banded on the tibia, the section of the leg higher up. Oh, okay. And those had no issues. There Interesting. Were no injuries. Yeah. While this study of penguins does raise important ethical issues about those flipper bands. I felt like the title of the article would lead people to believe that all types of banding are harmful to birds. Right. And really that title, banding kills birds it's supposed to tag. Right. Really it's showing that those bands were leading the banded birds to be less successful. Well, you're saying they're making too broad of a claim for the specific scenarios they're looking at. Right, and I feel when I first started reading this in my head, and I, you know, I'm someone that bird bands, I read through it that first time really bands feeling birds. Like, yeah. Birds bands, <laughs> is that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was reading through it thinking that they're talking about banding in general when it's really about this one type of band. Now, the next study I want to talk about is from 2006. So this talks about band-related leg injuries in a bird in Australia, a bird called a, a bell miner. Mm -hmm. This study starts off talking about that 1997 study, remember I mentioned yes. that one? About willow flycatchers by Sedgwick and Kluss. In that study, they reported an apparently unusually high incidence of leg injury in, do you remember? What, the willow flycatcher? Right. Yeah. But they weren't just using metal bands again. They were using those color bands. Oh. So willow flycatchers were studied from 1988 to 1995. There was an overall leg injury rate, get this, of 9.6%. Hmm. 
Hmm. So that's pretty high. Yeah, that's well above. Basically one out of 10 birds, right? Yeah. Most injuries occurred on legs with color bands. With the legs that just had metal bands on them, you know what their injury rate was? Less than 1%. 0.6%. Hey! <laughs> injuries ranged from severe with swollen, bleeding legs or a missing foot to relatively minor. And the return rates of the adult injured birds in the years following injury were significantly lower than for the population at large. So it really did seem to have an effect. Yeah. Now, this 2006 study that was referencing the, the earlier study, mm -hmm. they also said also in 1993 and 1994, there were studies that found metal bands caused the most injuries in spotted sandpipers. Okay. But Those looked, are the guys that wag their tail up and right. down. Yeah. But when I looked at that study, six out of the seven injured birds in that study had a color band and a metal band. Interesting. And then they, they referenced this other study from 1994 that looked at semi-palmated sandpipers mm -hmm. and their injury rate. But the injury rate in that study was only 0.36%. Oh, yeah, and that's that would be what they would consider acceptable. Right. Yeah. So I was surprised that they were referencing that as proof that, oh, look, they're, they're causing you know excessive injuries. I'm wondering if the issue here is that excessive doesn't really have a definition. Yes. Yeah. That's true. And one of the studies I'm going to get to, they really talk about that. They said there's there's no accepted standard for what's an acceptable amount of injury. And how do you make sure it's not arbitrary? Right. So maybe 1%, maybe that's not great. Maybe it's got to be 0. <laughs> 0. 0.5 or something. Right. <laughs> so in this 2006 study, they captured bell miners that had been color banded. Mm-hmm. And 8% of those birds had exhibited leg injuries. Hmm. Most were birds with two plastic color bands. Now, to get into the, the reason why these colored bands cause more injuries, this study, what it seemed to uncover was that when you have two or more of these bands, they're, they're typically plastic, these color bands, right? Yeah. They can generate static electricity. And what that leads to is an accumulation of shed tarsal scales. So these oh, leg scales. Okay. So these scales accumulate under the bands. And Wait, can... what, what does that have to do with static electricity? So these these plastic bands running up and down oh, the legs. Is it just wear and tear? It's generating static electricity and uh -huh. that causes the, the shed scales to stick there oh, and accumulate. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. okay. And this can result in infection and swelling in the tarsus and foot. Interesting. The band will continue to become tighter as the infection and swelling progresses. Right. More begins... and more junk gets stuck between yeah. the leg and the band. Exactly. So the internal surface of the band and the material of the band is likely also important is what they were saying. And I liked the results because they just said, look, our results indicate that these plastic color bands can generate static electricity and attract small pieces of tarsal scales. And that when you're selecting an appropriate band for a bird, the tarsus should only occupy 60 to 65% of the internal diameter of the band. So there really should be enough room for the band to move up and down freely. So it might not even be the case that it's the plastic, it's the case that it was sized wrong. Well, no, I no. would say that <laughs> okay. from this study, they were saying that those plastic bands, they need to be larger. Okay. And they're causing most of the injuries, at least in this study. Mm -hmm. But it did go on to say that the use of two plastic bands on one leg should be avoided for reasons provided in this and other studies. And then they referenced that in 2005, 
there was a study that described a method for producing a single aluminum band that has two colors on it. Oh. And then it would, have, would, reduce, would likely reduce leg injuries. Right. Right? Yeah, that, that seems like a really... It seems clunky to have the multiple bands. Like right. When we were up in Canada, it seemed weird to see so many bands like just ringed around <laughs> right. the leg of the bird. Like these gray jays with all this bling on their legs. Yeah, it's just, very weird. Yeah, it really stands out. And I can understand the rationale like, hey, if we do this, we don't have to capture these birds over and over again. Right. But there definitely seems to be issues with these multiple bands. And you know, I apologize to any researchers that might be listening, but this is what the research that I found indicated. Yeah. All right. So the last, I have one more study. Hopefully this isn't too long. No, after my episode last week. <laughs> so this is from 2012, and the title of this study was really How Safe is Misnetting? Because a lot of other studies look at just banding itself. This study also looked at the capture mm. and the banding process. Okay. And the long-term effects that the whole process of banding might have. They said when a bird is captured in a misnet, there's extrinsic factors that can alter the likelihood of an incident. So the incidents they were looking at included injury and or death. Okay. So those factors could include human error. I was going to say, extrinsic is not something to do with the net itself. It has right. some it's outside. outside force. Right. Yeah. And definitely, I will say right now, there have been times when I was dealing with a chickadee or something else that I had to get help for. Like, right. sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you get them out. But... Sometimes these chickadees, like you, almost have them completely out, and then they then they like flinch and fly out of your hand. And the chickadees rarely stop struggling. Yeah, yeah. they're horrible. <laughs> and you know, as the years have gone by, in terms of my experience, I don't know how I would be right now, but um, it would get easier and easier. But there's definitely a big difference between a Bill and a Steve when it comes <laughs> to getting a bird out of a net. And it's really just time at the net, how much time you yes. spend practicing. And there's techniques, oh, yeah. like there's ways to get better. Like it's it's not just it's not just the experience. Sometimes there's actually little rules you can follow. Like oh, make sure you you unhook the wing first, and then right. you know when just I, get the head last. Or when I go up to a bird, I usually first grab thing I the do feet. Is, no, but even before that, the is butt. figure out which side of the net did it go in. Right, right, and then try to find the butt of the bird without any net in front of it and then back it out usually mm -hmm. and you want to get the feet anywhere away from the net too because yeah. they'll want to just keep grabbing on and i would say getting the bird out of the net is probably one of the most challenging parts of learning how to bird band and do you know what it is i think it's because it takes a lot of skill and a lot of experience to figure out how to be gentle with the birds while also not being too gentle right. to where you're actually not pulling hard enough right. or because or else you'll never get the net out of their feet <laughs> it's a fine line you walk because yeah. you don't like you said you don't want to be too gentle because you're going to take too long stress yep. the bird out and you clearly don't want to be too rough because right. <laughs> they are birds they're fragile yes. right. i've never killed a bird at the net but i have had to give up and like you or aaron has had to do it for me and i remember those times where i'm like guys i'm scared i don't know like I, i've worked way too long on this bird we either got to let him go or someone else has to do this and sometimes we'll we carry scissors when yeah, we go out cut, yeah. and we'll cut the bird out and for reference folks aaron is our official bird bander she has our permit mm -hmm. uh, where we band out a beaver meadow she's the og bander yeah that's yeah. right and if you're interested in finding out about bird banding uh, we'll put links in, in the notes but uh, find a bird banding site in your area and you can get trained so there are sites that offer training in bird banding. Yeah. But back to the extrinsic factors that can alter the li how likely it is 
a bird is going to get injured or die in this process. It can be human error during handling, the time of year, so mm -hmm. if they're breeding or migrating or molting, that right. can change their stress level, their physical condition. It can be time of day. Temperatures are going to increase throughout the time of day. Right, and things really slow down as, as the temperatures warm up. Yeah, usually so the birds around aren't noon, you, you don't really catch much. You could also have predators, um, mist net mesh material and size can impact uh, whether or not there's an incident. Wouldn't that be an intrinsic factor? Kind no, of what be, I was thinking. Because what they're talking about is extrinsic to the bird. To the bird, okay. Right. I, I thought it was saying extrinsic to being captured in the net. Because the intrinsic factors they talked about were body condition, increased stress. I was going to say disease. <laughs> life uh, stage. Yeah, right. And then what I referred to before, post-juvenile dispersal. Oh. Right? So just out of the nest, they might be more prone to injury. Yeah. All right, so Steve's stopping here. Yeah, because I've been seeing them all along, and yeah. I feel like we have to say it. And that's one of the most popular, famous butterflies is kind of all over the place right now. The monarch. The monarch. And there's milkweed all over the place, too. So. Yeah kind of a nice thing to see. But of course, we were talking about it earlier, these milkweeds may be the result of plantings, people throwing seed. Sure. So th this all might just be one species of milkweed where there is a lot of benefit to getting multiple Asclepias species actually growing instead of just the common milkweed. All but the ones we've seen here all look like the same species. I'm okay with there being a lot of one species, but it's also very good to consider that there's a lot of species of milkweed, so. Yeah. All right, so let me ask you, Steve and also the audience out there. This seems like an obvious question, but if a bird is injured during the capture or the banding process, how do you think it's going to fare compared to an uninjured bird during the process? I, I guess... Over the course of its life. Right. So I would have to imagine that there's only the obvious answer, <laughs> and that is it wouldn't do as well. It would do worse, right? Yeah. So the researchers, they predicted that. Sure. They predicted, I mean, what a bold prediction. <laughs> they predicted that species, body size, age, and the timing of capture could influence the likelihood of an incident happening. Right. But that also birds released after an injury would survive in lower numbers. So okay. Makes sense. And then they did go out of their way. I love that they did this. They said, we acknowledge there are other factors such as fluctuations in weather and bander training and experience that could influence the rates of incident that we did not include in this study just because they didn't have access to those data. Hmm. And what they did is they surveyed bird observatories, places that do bird banding. They received info from 22 different banding organizations and they analyzed the data from those operations. It focused mostly on passerines and near passerines, but other groups were included. Oh, what's a near passerine? Like a woodpecker? What do you think they're doing? Oh, mushroom hunting? People right. off in the woods collecting something. I don't know, looking under logs maybe? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Good for them. Oh, no, but see, they're collecting something in a basket. Yeah. I wonder if they're collecting mushrooms or raspberries or something. Oh. Should we go interview them? <laughs> <laughs> Just creeping on some strangers <laughs> in the woods. All right, so you asked near passerines? Yeah, what is a near passerine? A woodpecker. Oh, right? okay. Now, in the data set, now get this, talk about uh, a sample size. There were records of 620,000 captures. Mm -hmm. And this reporting period covered 22 years. Wow. So it's a big data set. And there were 14 species in that data with fewer than 10 captures and no injuries or mortalities. So they oh. eliminated it. Excuse me, guys. <laughs> what are you guys collecting? Yeah. Oh, what are you finding over there? 
Nice. Oh, really cool. We were just we were watching you guys on the path, and we were just really curious. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. What kind of belief do you have? Is that what we just stepped over here? Is this one of them? It's a little bit beat up, but. Yeah. I always see people posting all their mushroom finds all over Western New York, yeah, but yeah. I never see it actually happen in person. Mm -hmm. cool. yeah. I've only ever collected bleats before, but they weren't in New York, so okay. I'm like not super comfortable doing it here. But yeah. you guys um, know Garrett Taylor? No. You go on Facebook. Mm -hmm. He's like big mushroom guy in this area. Leads oh, hikes probably all over the place. In one of the groups I'm yeah. in. Yeah. So he's yeah. based down in Allegheny State Park. Oh, cool. But yeah, he's always posting pictures, leading hikes, IDing stuff. Cool. Yeah. Cool. yeah. How long have you guys been doing it for? What are you going to do with them? The Fry them up? Or? Eat them, yeah. yeah. The other ones I'm just going to take pictures of and identify them. Cool. Good luck. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. I'm glad you stopped and asked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to the study. We were talking about the big data set, right? Mm-hmm. So... Oh, how many did you say? There were 14 species that had fewer than 10 captures with no injuries or mortality, so they eliminated those because of their small samples. They were outliers, basically. Okay. And the remaining data included 188 species. So I'm just saying all this to show that this was a big study. They 188 species over 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. And over 600,000 captures. Wow. The average rate of mortality, 0.23%. Oh, wow, okay. Average rate of injury, 0.59%. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Predation at the net was usually fatal. Now, we haven't had a lot of predation out of Beaver Meadow. I was going to say, that's not something that rings any bells. What kind of animals do you think predate animals at the net? Or birds at the oh, net? Oh, that's a good point. Huh. Well, Because I feel like a squirrel would get caught in a net. Okay. I think a chipmunk would get caught. I don't even know if a chipmunk would take out a bird. <laughs> so uh. the, they said hawks were the most common. Well, that's what I would think too. But at the net, would the hawk also get caught? Because we have, haven't we had a raptor one time? We have, but... Larger hawks, for the mist nets that we're using, yeah. they can rip that mesh pretty easy. Got it. So, so what would you say, like a cooper's hawk maybe, or a, or like a kestrel? We've caught a sharp-shinned hawk before, Yeah. but sharp-shinned hawks were a common predator in this study, as well as coopers. Okay. There were pygmy owls, northern shrikes, mm. black-billed magpies. Get this one. Eastern cottontails. Oh. <laughs> so there were hmm. rabbits predating on birds in the net. Wow. That's it's like something out of Mighty Python. Yeah. And the Holy Grail, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but deer were included as well. And I've actually talked to some banders about this, and they're wondering if animals that are supposed to be herbivores, like deer and <laughs> rabbits, might be going after moisture, because in the early morning there can be a lot of dew. Yeah, like blood. Like the blood of the birds. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there might be dew on the gnats and collects on the birds. Like how sometimes dogs will like get the dew off of grass. Well, I don't know about that, but I swear I've seen it happen at some of the dogs at my cabin. But I just loved seeing cottontails listed among the predators there. Right. Yeah. And then there were of course. But you have to like... imagine that they knew that they're predators, right? Like they must have been they must have found them with a bird in their mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> they must have. They didn't give details in the study, yeah. yeah. But then there were, of course, things like cats and foxes, weasels, minks, etc. Yeah. And magpies, that was kind of cool. That's yeah. another one of our crow and jay yeah. relatives. Smarties. Yeah. So the top three injuries were wing injuries, stress, and cuts. There were 15 types of different injuries they listed. Mm -hmm. Injuries because of the bands were 13th on the list. So oh, okay. they were low on the list. 
the top three types of mortality, the reasons birds died, were stress, mm-hmm. which makes sense, predation, and then unknown. I'm surprised predation's that high. Yeah, I know, because but I think we're basing that on our own anecdotal. Right. Because at our site, for whatever reason, we have very low predation rates. That we know of, I guess. That's true. <laughs> now, for all the organizations in this study, reported mortality rates were lower than that 1% target specified in the handbook of field methods I referenced before. Yeah. And while the injury rate exceeded the mortality rate, the combined rates still fell below 1% for 18 out of the 22 organizations. And these rates, you know, you were talking about what's acceptable. Yeah. These rates are lower than many studies published on the risk of capture and banding in other taxa. So when you're looking at, you know, well, all wildlife research, what's the going rate? These rates for bird banding in this study were lower. Hmm. Now, they did say the mortality rate of shorebirds captured with walk-in traps or mist nets is between zero and 3%, and raptors caught with balshotry, noose harness, and bonnet traps Injury rates of 9% have been reported. Oh. So hmm. they're giving examples here of some higher rates. Right. Uh, and then they said there were several mammal studies that required legs, traps, or snares, or helicopter darting. Yeah. Their mortality and injury rates, again, are above 1%. Hmm. Now, the, the species that they found in this study that were more susceptible to incident were spotted towhees, Allen's hummingbirds, western tanagers, and American robins. So that echoes what I said before. Yeah, the American robin. Yeah. Robins that we've caught at Beaver Meadow, there have been times where you catch the bird, you take it out of the net without incident, and it dies in your hand. Hmm. It's usually juvenile robins. I'm basing this on a data set of three robins that we've caught in the past 18 years of banding at Beaver Meadow because we don't catch a lot of robins at our site. I was going to say, that's not a bird that would come to mind. If someone asked me to list off the birds that we catch... Right. Yeah. It's rare that we catch robins. I don't even know if I'd remember to put it on the list. <laughs> but we know when we catch a robin, we remove it as quickly as possible and process it as quickly as possible yeah. with minimal disturbance. Because we know, at least at our site, and the study seems to back it up, they mm-hmm. seem especially susceptible <laughs> when they're young. So this study found no evidence. This goes along with the question I asked you before. Yeah. Birds that are injured during the process, how are they going to fare? Yes. This study found no evidence for increased mortality over time of injured hmm. birds compared with uninjured birds. Interesting. And again, that's just... Well, you were saying before, like it kind of goes with what you're saying, like even with these leg injuries and all this stuff, they're still breeding and they were right. still yeah. uh, surviving, being recaptured after each year. In the discussion, when they kind of wrapped up this paper, they said, while the level of mortality and injury that should be considered normal or acceptable, those are in quotes, mm-hmm. hasn't been defined for wildlife research, it does appear that compared to other techniques, Misnetting has low rates of incident when conducted with bird safety precautions in mind and adequate training. Hmm. And again, this was using a single metal band usually. Yeah. Uh, they said rates of mortality and injury below 1% are obviously achievable for projects utilizing misnets, but they can't assume that their findings are representative of all organizations. I like that they put that in there. Yeah. Injured birds are likely to survive in comparable numbers to uninjured birds after release. So while overall risks are low, this study did identify those vulnerable species I talked about and traits that may increase the chance of incident. So banders really need to monitor their performance and compare their results to other organizations. Like at Beaver Meadow, 
we're always shooting for less than 1%. Yeah. And thankfully, we've been able to achieve that. It's very rare that incidents happen of injury. It's even rarer that we have a bird die. Yeah. When you are banding, you've got, you got to be aware of what species are vulnerable. And in particular, you want to look for signs of stress. I said we were going to talk about this. So do you remember? What do you look for? Yeah. So there's one weird thing that sometimes the birds do is that they'll open up their mouth and kind of like their tongue will come out. It looks like but they're panting. Yeah. It, yeah. It definitely looks like they're a dog panting. Yeah. yeah. So if they're panting, if they're closing their eyes, if yeah. they seem Ugh. extremely lethargic. That's scary when you kind of see them like nodding off and you're like, no, bud, no, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's like you, they som wilt. Sometimes right? you put them in your shirt to warm them up. And every time we've put them in a shirt to warm up, I don't think I've ever seen a bird die. They've always recovered and we've released them just fine. It's happened rarely. Yeah. Usually the most common form of injury that we see at Beaver Meadow is wing strain. So oh. it may be that moving around in the net or maybe if a bander isn't really experienced and they're not too careful moving the wings to, to check for different things, yeah. they can strain the wing and when you let the bird go, it has trouble flying. Mm -hmm. We will often put those birds into a bag to reduce stress and then we put them inside our shirt, the bag inside our shirt to keep them warm. Yeah. And as you said, usually after holding them like that for a time, when you let them go, they appear fine. So is the wing strain, is that like basically like pulling a muscle or something and we're just waiting for that to recover so it's a really short-term recovery that's my understanding okay all right well that's what I have so overall to wrap up I would say what the research seems to show is that bird banding when you're using a single metal band and you're catching them in mist nets it is possible to achieve injury or mortality rates of less than one percent and it seems that that matches up with quote-unquote acceptable injury rates in other areas of wildlife research yeah and if you're gonna be using colored bands that's something you got to look at carefully and look at ways to reduce possible injury or mortality and like I made reference to in that one study there are metal bicolored bands out there and available that definitely seems like a good you know I would love to see it in a study comparing yeah. the the metal bicolor bands yeah because I didn't look plastic. into that so yeah. that, that is something. Uh, maybe I can put that in the episode notes. Yeah, but now I do kind of feel a little bit bad about making fun of American robins a bunch, calling them migrating turds, <laughs> because I didn't realize how sensitive they were. <laughs> they are very sensitive, especially when they're young. Yeah. So that, in a nutshell, is bird banding. So I guess it's time to end the episode, but I forgot those notes at my car. So we're gonna have to like teleport over there or something, <laughs> at least from your guys' perspective. <laughs> All right, ready? Go. Oh. <sighs> <laughs> All right, guys, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. But we don't actually have any since the last episode. Uh, so uh, instead, we want to give some thanks to some one-time supporters that donated through our PayPal yeah. link. Yeah. So thank you so much, Samantha Stone and David Rudmiller. Thank you, guys. Very generous. Thank you guys so much. So we're thankful for all of our patrons, but at the end of every episode, we like to give a special thanks to our top patrons. Rob, we named the dog Indy, Dean, Christina, Gavin, Pollywog, Jacqueline, Jessica, John, Nick, and Rebecca, and especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, Susan, Rachel, Orange Julian, and Alyssa. Thanks, folks. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> and we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers on iTunes, so thank you very much. C. Purin1, Jess Daniels, 
and Mountain Man Reed. Yeah, I like that uh, Jess said she's sharing the podcast with her 10-year-old son. Nice, yeah. yeah. So keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And we also want to give a shout out to Always Wandering Art because they probably have a thumbnail for us. But they usually provide the artwork for our episode. Yeah, yeah. So um, just uh, make sure to, to check out their website uh, and their Etsy page. Uh, links are going to be in the description. And before we sign off, we want to give a special shout out to Gumleaf USA. They're one of our episode sponsors. And they've been kind enough to provide us with high quality rubber boots. We've mentioned them on many episodes before. Steve and I both now have a pair and we have gotten lots of great use out of them. They are made of natural rubber, so they will last a lot longer than less expensive rubber boots. We can attest that they are great for herping, for botanizing, for bird banding. For finding purple fringed orchids. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I really got a lot of use out of them last weekend. Check out gumleafusa.com. And if you're a patron of our podcast, you get a special discount. Input offer code TFG2019 to get free shipping. All right, so if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides or through our PayPal donate button on our website. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review wherever you want. <laughs> <laughs> On your favorite podcatcher. Yeah, it really helps us get the word out to more people. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. And before we sign off, I just want to remind everybody, parents, get those kids outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. And also, adults, get yourself outside. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. See ya.